Good morning. It's hard to do this with a straight face. Is there anyone here that looks more ridiculous than me wearing the tool belt? Who thinks this is the first time in my life I have ever worn a tool belt? Who thinks this will probably be the last time in my life? <laughs> you would be correct. It's, it, I don't even, yes, I'm just going with the flow, people. It's so funny because I'm like, I told uh, Pastor Mark, how do you guys carry, walk around with all this stuff on you? But I wanted to look authentic, so here's my nod to our topic today um, from Pastor Peter's book and the Bible, of course. Here are these, I don't even know what half these tools do, quite honestly. <laughs> what I wanted to do, Hello, hello, live stream people. We love you. And if you're looking at this next week and you're going, Mildred, what is that woman wearing? Uh, yes, well, here you go. So I have used a meat tenderizer. You know those big metal things that have spikes on one end and they're flat on the other side? I've used a meat tenderizer to nail things into walls before. <laughs> That's my idea of a tool. It worked wonderfully until so my husband got home and was like, what have you? Yeah. Anyway, so these are the tools. Don't ask me what they're for, but we will be using them this morning. This has been a great series, right? It's even, it's even sweeter because it comes from the heart of our pastor and from years of experience. But um, we've enjoyed this series, and I would like to close it out today with some um, thoughts and some insight and some scripture about replacing the tools, or, or some of you might not have even had the tools put in your tool belt in the first place, and if my biggest fear was that I would stab myself with one of these tools if I had them stuck in here, so we only have things that have round edges, so I can't hurt myself, <laughs> because seriously, that's, that's where it would be. My tool belt would be more like a book bag. That would be more my style, so anyway... We've been learning about the blueprint for family, and one of the most important things that we've learned is not a one of us in this room had all the tools that we need to start life. Um, maybe we had wonderful parents. A lot of us did have wonderful parents, but we come to the place when we, as Pastor Peter said last week, we enter a new season, or we come upon a situation that we've never experienced before, or something was thrust upon us that we didn't know how to handle. And we all come to the point, no matter how wonderful our parents were or how negligent or disappointing our parents were, we all come to the place where we realize, you know what, we didn't have all the tools that we need. Before I get started, I would like to remind you all that if anybody needs a copy of this book, we have some back at the back table. We would love to have you uh, purchase one, or if you need, we would love to give you one. I asked Pastor Peter earlier, would you autograph any of these books? And he graciously said, are you kidding? Uh, he said, yes, he said he would. So here we go. I, I resonated with what uh, Pastor Peter said earlier, because I really felt like the Lord was saying this was the morning for joy, that we're supposed to enjoy ourselves today, because we know that in his presence, there's fullness of of joy. There's fullness of joy. So I'm, I'm excited about that. But here we go. The biggest thing, like I said, that we've discovered is we didn't have everything 
that we need to live a life that is full. That's not our parents' fault. If we're at the age that we are now, it's now our responsibility to get the tools that we need to live a life that is full and is pleasing to God. And those can both be done. Those are both, uh, those aren't opposite goals. Uh, the Lord wants us to live life and he wants us to live life to the full. And I don't know how you people walk around with these things on, but I'm going to do it because this is part of my ensemble. All the ladies know what I'm talking about. You get something fixed and you want, ladies, can I hear? A, okay. So this isn't coming off. If I trip, somebody come up and pick me up. Here we go. So what should have happened in those first 18 years, most of us have come to realize didn't actually happen in those first 18 years as far as receiving every tool that we needed. Being loved unconditionally. A lot of us felt that. A lot of us had that. But some of us didn't get the instruction that we needed. Some of us felt like our opinions were not respected or that we didn't have a voice or that we were told to shred up or that we should be seen but not heard, all those different things. Some of us were raised in a home where God was not mentioned, where God was just something that you found out about on your own, but but the reality of God, the existence of God, the love and the mercy of God was not something that was poured into you as a child. That foundation for total acceptance, that foundation for unconditional love, that foundation for having a father that we could ask anything for and and pray to was not instilled in us. And so we come to the place where we are today. We're finishing this series, and this, this is entitled Replacing, or in some cases, Adding the Tools That We Need. Does anybody know what this... Okay, there you go. There we go. All right. So we're going to start with... with, We're going to follow the book, and then we're going to also add scriptures because we don't ever want you to think we're just talking about a doctrine of man or a philosophy of man where everything is based, as he said in his book, that this, this is based on the blueprint that's found in the Bible. So all along the way, we've used the Bible not as a... Uh, as an emphasis for our point, but our points come out of the truth of the scriptures about what God intended for families, what God intended for husband and wife, what God intended to be sown into us. So that's where we're going. So the first thing that we see is find a relationship with God. I know that some parents, that one of, one of my biggest concerns as I talk with many parents over the years, and I, I mean hundreds of parents over the years, is sometimes there's a thought that I'm not really going to speak to my child about God. I'm going to let them discover God on their own. I'm going to let them discover who God is or even what God to worship or even what, what metaphysical thing we should place in, in place of God. So that Some parents think I'm just going to let them figure it out on their own. But what I try to tell them, what I try to assert with them is that if you don't tell them about God, if it's not important to you, chances are it won't be important to them. And everyone that knows, everyone that's had a toddler and tried to get a toddler to eat lettuce, anybody ever tried to get a toddler to eat lettuce, we know they have a will of their own. So when 
our child grows up, they will eventually decide what they want to do with Jesus, the claims of Christ. They will decide for themselves. But if as a parent, we aren't sowing that into our child, it tells them, it signals to them, it's not important. It's not important enough to sow this into your life. And we all know that things that are important to mom and dad are the things that happen. We all think it's important to go to the dentist. We all think it's important to be educated. And so those things happen. So for us, the tool, the very first tool, and this relationship with God is the power tool. I love this. It was too heavy to carry, so that's why Pastor Mark helped me. He brought it up here. It's the tool that when you plug it in, it has power. These other tools operate on our, <laughs> on our, this is heavy too. My goodness, I am so out of shape. It's like ridiculous. I could use it like that. These tools are under our own strength, our own power. But the power tool is this first thing that Pastor Peter says in his book, a relationship with God. Amen. I'll say amen when I need a sip of water. And for those of you at home, we're, we're so glad that you're here. It's madness, I tell you, but it's fun, fun, fun. All right. Um, back in the early 1940s, and none of us here were alive then, so that's good, there was a psychologist, and most of you, some of you know who, who he was when I tell you his name. It was Abraham Maslow, <clears throat> and he proposed a theory that theory was that in order for humans to grow, for children to grow into healthy adulthood, they needed, there were some very basic needs. And those basic needs should be met or needed to be met before we could get to the place as a, as a, as a woman or as a man where we could, and he called it self-actualize, which is just kind of like a, a psychology term that means reach your full potential. So what he was proposing in this theory is that we would not reach our full potential as a daughter or as a son, as a man or as a woman, until these basic needs were met. And I actually think that's a really good thought. It's a really good idea. The theory has been updated over the years, but there, there is a place where he stopped short in that theory. Because even now, as we go through a checklist of what we needed as a child... You know, we, we, we know that we have basic needs to be loved. We know that we have that need to be accepted. We know that we have that need to, to feel like we belong. We know that we need, we have that need to be safe physically. So his theory was correct as far as it went. But he never brought in the God factor that we're talking about here. It stopped short. And when he talked about reaching our full potential, he never envisioned or never crafted the words that included God. So I want to bring what Jesus had to say into it because I like his words. His words are life. His words are truth. And he never stopped short of the goal. So what does Jesus say? <clears throat> Don't worry about these things. He's not denying that we have physical needs. He's not denying that at all. But what he's saying is, don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. That, that, that phrase captured my attention because I find myself sometimes letting 
thoughts about this, especially if I'm trying to, you know, lose weight or gain weight, like that's ever happened, or, you know, whatever, what am I going to wear? I find sometimes I get in a season where I find that that can dominate my thoughts. But, but Jesus is saying that that's what unbelievers do, people that don't believe in God, people that don't know who God is, people that haven't placed their trust in a loving God. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything that you need. He wasn't saying that those other things aren't important. He wasn't saying that you you don't need to eat or you don't need to think about what you're going to wear at all. But he was saying that it's not the only thing. It's not the most important thing. Jesus always intertwined what we need, which is what Maslow was trying to propose in his theory. This is what every human needs. But, but Jesus didn't stop there. He said he always intertwines what we need with whom we need. And our deepest, most fundamental Basic need is for a relationship with God. And if, that is, if that's not the foundation, if that's not the basis, then all these other things get out of perspective, get out of order. Uh, when we find the gaps in our life that we'll see as we reflect and think about the tools our parents gave us, the tools that we still need, we won't be able to keep that in a proper perspective in the perspective that God has if he's not a foundation. Now, I realize that a lot of parents didn't instill that in their children or they had this thought that it was a private thing. But Jesus says you can't divorce God from your everyday life. You can't separate the physical from the spiritual. They have to be intertwined. And I love that. I think that's, that's wonderful. It keeps things in perspective. So the first thing that we talk about is find God. Find a relationship with God for yourself. And that is our biggest tool. That's the tool with all the power that gets everything else done. Amen? Amen. Okay. The next thing that we talked about in the book Find the right mentors. Uh, I've had a rocky road with mentorship. Now, when I first got started, when Pastor Mark and I were first married, back just a couple years ago, we didn't really call it mentorship. We called it, you know, counseling or spiritual direction. We called it something else. It wasn't mentorship. wasn't the word that it is now. But that's what it was, obviously. So I, we were newlyweds, and I had a lot of ideas that were not compatible with marriage, we'll just say. So some of my thoughts were not really compatible, because, you know, I hadn't married before. I watched my, my parents exchange husband and wife, and, you know, for the good and for the not so good. But there were questions that I had. And so there was an older woman in our church, um, she was old enough that I didn't feel like I was going to appear with those judgy eyes of like, well, I'm doing this. Why aren't you doing this? You know, it was an older woman, which is what the Bible says to do. Go to the older women. Now I see the value of going to peers as well. For you small group leaders, there's value there. But the first mentorship thing that I had encountered with was when I first got married. 
And uh, Mike and Maggie will remember this. I won't say any names, but I would go to her and I would ask. Because mentoring can be formal and it can be informal. Formal is more like I'll, I'll go to whoever and I'll say, would you please help me with this problem? Would you help me pray through this? Will you give me some steps to take to get me out of this rut I'm in? Will you show me the next steps? How did you do it? So more formal mentorship is when you actually ask. Small group leaders are so good to have for this, to ask. And if they don't know, they'll say, you know what? Let's go to the Word together. I, I, I haven't experienced that yet. Or they'll say, I, I know exactly what you're struggling with, because I have struggled with that as well. But the first thing to do is ask. So I went to this older woman in the church that we went to at the time, and I asked her, would you please? I've got some questions, and I feel like I'm right. I feel like my husband isn't right, and, but I know that that can't always be true. So would you help me? Would you help me? And she did. And she was the perfect balance of, of grace and truth. And so part of finding the right mentors that Pastor Peter mentions in his book is going to the right person and asking. Asking. So that went on for as long as we lived here in, 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 you know, in, in Florida. But then we moved when uh, Crystal Brunton, our lead pastor, one of our lead pastors, when she was three months old. We moved away from our support system, away from our family, our extended family here. We moved up to a place right outside of Philadelphia. And that's where it got bumpy and rocky for me, uh, as far as mentorship, as far as, as, as asking for help, because we were living with family, which is a wonderful thing. They were so gracious to have us in their home. But I wasn't in the right place, and we're going to talk about having the right attitude to be mentored as the third point. But I wasn't in, because of me, I wasn't in the right place to ask. So I had to glean from her. I could have learned, I've said this many times to, to our ladies in my small group, how much more I could have learned if I had just asked and made it a purposeful thing to be mentored, to get the tools that I needed for this season of my life was for children and child training. And my sister-in-law, her, her degree was in early childhood development and education, and she was perfect for what I needed. And I'll give you an example of why it was rough and bumpy for me. Um, I already felt like we were putting them out because we lived in their home, and they had a bunch of kids. We got, ended up with a bunch of kids, so it was just a, a wild, crazy, fun chaotic time. So we had this situation. She was, my sister-in-law is wonderful, brilliant, loving, but she was the kind of person that would wait until five o'clock in the afternoon, 5.30, and start to decide, what should we have for dinner? Her husband comes home at six, and so she would just then be taking the stuff out of the freezer. I don't know if there any of you other men or women are like that, but that would just drive me crazy. I'm like, what, 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 what do you mean? Everything's frozen. So we kind of came up with a division of labor, and so I would cook a lot of the evening meals because at, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, I was already thinking about dinner. So I would do that, and then she did other things that I didn't want to do. So one day, I was chopping food at the counter. I'm sure it was vegetables, something like that. And uh, Crystal, who was just a toddler, she might have been three. Sarah was a newborn. 
she was born up there. And Crystal came up and, and, and stood on a stool and reached for something that I was doing. And I just offhandedly said, Crystal, that's the only one you can have. Don't, don't get another one. And I kept doing what I was doing. So she, you know, walked off. And a few minutes later, she comes up. And I'm still, you know, working. And she grabbed another one and, and walked away. And so my mentor, who I had not officially asked her for any kind of advice, said something that profoundly changed my philosophy about imparting to children. She just simply said, you know, you said she couldn't ask, she couldn't get another one, don't you? And immediately something inside me was like, froze up against her, not like froze up and like, yes, you're right, absolutely. It was like, for a second, it's like, how dare you question my whatever, you know? That pride that he talks about in his book, that the Bible talks about, something inside me. So I, you know, I muttered something, but I thought about it. And like I said, I'm sure I wasn't cutting vegetables or she wouldn't have kept coming to try to get whatever it was I was cutting. I was, you know, cake or something or making frosting, whatever. But I thought about it. And I, and I, and I thought about it some more because the point that she said was absolutely correct. And how I linked it back, and I'm ashamed to say I was leaning rather than asking, but the point was, your words are important. You have to enforce your words. And if you don't have the energy or the will to enforce what you've said to your children, then don't say anything. Let them run through the house with scissors rather than say, if you don't stop running through the house with scissors, I'm going to you know, cut off all your hair or whatever. I don't know. But that was, that was something that sunk deep, deep, deep into my heart and became a foundation because words are important. And I learned the value from her mentorship, from gleaning from her, that if my kids couldn't trust my words, I would, it would create problems for me all the way down the road. That to lay that foundation that what mom says, what dad says, they mean, they'll follow through, I can count on their words, I can count on them, has, has, has paved the way for so much good things to happen. So there's that. And then the other thing about mentorship is sometimes it doesn't have to be a person. Some of my best mentors have been out of books. And I know y'all are going to be going like, oh my gosh, this, this woman is such a whatever. I don't care because it's the truth. I remember when, when the children were small and I was, you know, thinking, having this conversation with myself about, you know, how do I have my devotional time and how do I, there's just so much to do, you know, giving myself an excuse for why I couldn't do what the Bible said I should be doing. So I was reading a book about Susanna Wesley. And I remember thinking, well, if anybody could, could instruct me, could tutor me, could mentor me at Susanna Wesley. And I don't know how many of you know who she is, but she was the mother of John Wesley. And since I was a good Methodist for like 10 years, I, I wanted to hear what she had to say. I thought she's got to be a really good mom to produce John and Charles Wesley. So it's said that she, she had nine, she gave birth to 19 children, 19, several sets of twins and all kinds of, I mean, like everything you can imagine and in between, and nine of them passed away. We're so thankful. We're so grateful to live in a time where disease, a lot of diseases have been eradicated. But back then, children were killed very, very often in early childhood. 
But it said that with her two children and then other kids in the neighborhood that would come, she would sit in the middle of her kitchen. Remember, they didn't have all the conveniences I had. They didn't have a, a, a you know, air conditioning and a washer and a dryer and a, a, a stove like we have. It said that she would sit in the middle of her kitchen. She would pull the apron over her head and she would pray all throughout the day. And when her children saw that apron over her head, that was like a huge do not disturb sign. They knew that when that apron was over her head, not to disturb mom. And I thought, man, if she can do that, that I was mentored by learning about the practices of other great women and great men of the faith. And I need to move on because we have a lot of good stuff. Okay. So ask, glean, and study. These are just three types of mentoring that that can happen in your life. And the last that we're going to talk about is find the right attitude. And this makes all the difference to what God wants to do in your life. It made all the difference in mine. If I hadn't have spent so many years with a rotten attitude about instruction, even though the Bible says we're to love instruction, we're to love correction, but somehow you get used to, as a parent, being the one that gives the correction, gives the instruction, and we, we get out of the habit of receiving instruction and receiving correction. But as a, as a child of God, I have to stay in that place where I'm able to receive correction and receive instruction. And I can never get out of that place as long as I want to keep growing and staying alive in the kingdom of God in, in, as a child of God. So we have the tool of mentorship. And I was going to be putting these tools in here all along, but I've already given up on that because it's already too heavy. So find the right attitude. Before we start the, the verse, I just want to say that this is probably the hardest because it goes against our flesh to be told what to do. It goes against our natural tendency to reach out and ask for help. And it's not always about money. I know of this woman. She doesn't live in this state, so you don't have to be thinking who I'm talking about. You don't know her. And she pays really, really good money to have corporate coaches. And these corporate coaches try to help her, not with information that she needs to do her job, but how to get along with the people that she works with. This would be what I would call an example of formal mentoring, formal coaching. And you know what? To this day, when I asked another woman about her a couple weeks ago, she said, well, she's still having trouble. She cannot inspire loyalty in the people that work with her. So it's not just about instruction. It's not about knowledge all the time. It's not about money or lack of money. It's about our pride and our attitude when we work and talk with people. So I want to contrast something in the Bible. Now, we have a lot of examples of mentorship. We've got Paul. We've got Timothy. We talked about him when we studied um, Philippians. We have Joshua, Moses. We have Ruth and Naomi. There are so many examples in the Bible of mentorship, informal mentorship, and passing on what we know to the next generation. And, and none of those examples or blood relations. But I think one of the most important things we need to do is to have the attitude of a son 
or a daughter like we are with God. To have that attitude rather than a prideful attitude like, like an employee would have. So let's just read this very, very quickly and we'll finish up here. I, I, we don't have time to go into the backstory. Most of you already know it. If not, please look it up. We're going we're to talk about it. So Abram left Egypt and traveled north into the Negev along with his wife and Lot and all that they owned. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. From the Negev, they, traveled, they continued traveling by stages toward Bethel, and they pitched their tents between Bethel and Ai, where they, should have, where they had camped before. This was the same place where Abram had built the altar, and there he worshipped the Lord again. Lot, who was traveling with Abram, had also become very wealthy with flocks and sheep and goats, herds of cattle, and many tents. Now, it's interesting. Who's traveling with who here? Lot is traveling with Abram. Abram's the one that God said, we all know, the blessing is going to come through you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you tremendously. So Lot is traveling with Abram under Abram's, as his name hasn't been changed to Abraham yet, under Abram's blessing. But the land could not support both Abram and Lot with all their flocks and herds living so close together. So disputes broke out between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. Finally, Abram said to Lot, you got to wonder why Lot hadn't stepped up to the plate and said, look, Abram, the peacemaker, was part of his character to make peace, said, let's not allow this conflict to come between us or our herdsmen. After all, we are close relatives. We're blood. Let's not allow this thing to escalate. The whole countryside is open to you. Take your choice of any section of the land you want. It's generous. Generous. Generosity. And we will separate. If you want the land on the left, then I will take the land on the right. If you prefer the land on the right, then I'll go to the left. So Lot, who is traveling under Abram's blessing, who is getting rich under Abram's blessing, Lot took a long look at the fertile plains of the Jordan Valley in the direction of Zoar. The whole area was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of the Lord or the beautiful land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot chose for himself the best piece of land. He went there with his flocks and servants and parted company with his uncle Abram. So Abram settled in the land of Canaan, and Lot moved his tents to a place near Sodom and settled among the cities of the plain. But the people of this area were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord. Now, Lot knew that when he chose that spot. But he chose it because it looked like the best land for him. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't judge it according to anything spiritual or anything that would affect his family. He looked at it and thought, that looks like the best place. That's where I'm going to go. After Lot had gone, the Lord said to Abram, Look, as far as you can see in every direction, north and south, east and west, I am giving all this land as far as you can see 
to you and your descendants as a permanent possession. I will give you so many descendants like the dust of the earth that cannot be counted. I love how the Lord takes what we give him and he makes that fruitful. God didn't need the land to be fruitful because God intended to make that land fruitful because that's what Abram chose. Go and walk through the land in every direction for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his camp to Hebron and settled near the oak tree belonging to Mamre. Then he built another altar to the Lord. Now, we will quickly, very quickly see the difference in Lot and Abram. Lot wanted the wealth of Abram, but he didn't want the walk of Abram. I wonder if Lot ever even asked, ever wondered why God chose to bless Abram so greatly. But his heart was such that he just wanted. He wanted. He took. He didn't. It, I, we don't see anywhere where he gives back in this relationship. And this is one of the things that Pastor Peter says in at, towards the end of the book. It's about our heart. It's about not just being a taker, but being a giver. Being able to to, to bless and. Abram's walk, even in this small portion of scripture we read, he's always building an altar to the Lord, which signifies his worship and his reverence for God. So I see that Lot takes the fruit of Abram's life, but he never gets to the root of why God was blessing Abraham. He never got to the place where he understood that God was blessing Abram because Abram honored God. And even though he was a blood relative, it didn't seem to matter. He still chose what was best for him. And so Paul says in Philippians, and we just, we just learned about this in our study, Paul says, I see this attitude of selfishness and, and not wanting to, to be a giver, but wanting to be a taker. He goes, I see this everywhere. Here's what he says. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I have no one, then later on in the chapter, I have no one else like you, like you, who genuinely cares about your welfare. Timothy's heart was such that Paul knew he could entrust secrets. He could share things about the kingdom with Timothy because Timothy wasn't selfish. Timothy wasn't greedy. He was, he cared about other people. All the others care only for themselves, seek only their own interests and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. This is important. Our attitude when we are being mentored, our attitude to being able to mentor, it's important. Are we just about ourselves? Is it just about me and mine and not ever about you and yours? I'm going to give an example as I close that my family doesn't know I'm going to share this. And one of the, one of the I don't know if it's on the plus column or the minus column of being born in a pastor's family, but Pastor Peter was, I was, the kids all are. I call them kids, they're adults, but you, you know that when you're born, you're just a bundle of, of sermon illustrations. So I'm going to use them again. 
But um, and I've never actually spoken about this in public. So maybe my view is slanted from what actually happened, but I'm going to say it because this is what my take is on it. About 15 years ago, uh, we have friends that are in the pastorate, uh, friends that keep us accountable, friends that we can call and say, what do, what do we do about this? I don't know, what, what are you doing about that? that those kinds of friends, uh, mentors, and us to them. And one time, this, this pastor and his wife came down. They live in another country. And they, they, we all went out to lunch with uh, Pastor Peter and Crystal, uh, to dinner with Pastor Peter and Crystal. And this pastor, he was, he was our peer. And we were having a nice dinner. And, and I kind of sensed like there was, a, there was a, an agenda other than why are we here than friendship. But so this pastor starts talking about how he thought it was time that we turn the church over to Pastor Peter. This is about 15 years ago. And uh, it was a wonderful, you know, he was our peer and mentor, so we welcomed that thought. But we didn't actually think that the timing was right. We knew that in our heart, Pastor Mark and I knew that that was the right thing to do. That's what we were going to do. But we didn't feel like the timing was right then. And so, we're, you know, we had finished our meal. It was quite cordial. And we just said, well, uh, th- you know, thank you. You know, I will pray about it, but, you know, but I, we just don't feel like the timing is right yet. There's, there's still some things that we feel like we need to implement as lead pastors. And when that's done, then we'll... And I, I could tell he was disappointed, but, you know... But I, why, why I'm saying that, and obviously we, we've done that. Fast forward 10 years, and Pastor Mark says to, to Pastor Peter, I want you to start seeing how the reins feel, seeing how the harness I would say toe cold, but that wouldn't sound right. See how the harness feels. See how the noose feels around your neck. And, and we'll just informally start the process. And then, you know, a couple years go by, and he does everything correct, and everything's wonderful. So then we, then we formally say, and then we formally say again, okay, this is... But 15 years ago, we didn't feel like it was the right timing. But here's why I'm saying that. <laughs> Not once in those 15 years did our son Peter act like, you, get out of the way, you old people. Get out of the way. Not once. The heart makes all the difference. I can't tell you how many times we've seen people in that same situation. It's happened just recently. Not with us, but with... He could have easily said, well, you know what? I'm going to take the people that think it is my time, and I'm going to go start a church down the road. God bless you. God bless us. Let's just, let's just divide our, our herds and go. He never did that. He was a son in the house of God. And that's what I'm saying about the right heart. If, if, if any one of us were about kingdom building... Personal kingdom building, that's what he would have done. He would have said, well, I'm, you know, I'm taking those 500, those two, whatever, people, and I'm just going to start something down the road. Not once, not even once did he make us feel like, come on, a year's gone by, two years have gone by, three years have gone by. What in the world? Kind of like Abraham waiting for God's promise in his life with Sarah. Not once. And not once did our adult children 
say, like the older son and the prodigal, what about us? We've been here the whole freaking time. What about us? Not once. I'm only saying that to say there's a difference in your heart. And God will bless humility. God will bless waiting on his timing. Now, was it that Pastor Peter trusted implicitly in our leadership? Probably. But more than that, it, it goes back to that very first point. He trusts God. He trusts God. Our adult children trust God. And even if we miss the mark, even if we make a wrong decision, our trust is in God. And that's where your trust should be. And if that's the foundation, no matter what tools are missing, no matter what has not been implemented in your life, if your trust, if that first tool is a relationship with God, it will keep everything else in the proper perspective. It will keep something like this from splitting aside your whole family, from splitting apart whole churches. When your heart is right, your attitude is right. Lord, I don't really agree with this. I really think this is my time. I, I don't say that he said that, but I'm just saying in the natural, Lot would have said that. I'm picking the best for me. I'm taking, this is my time. But we trust God. And you can see that a new season has come with the installation of new leadership in God's timing. So our heart has to be right or none of this mentorship will work. It doesn't matter how many tools we have in our belt. If our heart is not right, if our attitude is not right, it won't matter because our pride will circumvent and undercut anything God wants to do. Amen? Would you stand with me, please? on that fun and happy note. But it is a happy note because there's fruit. There's good fruit in trying to find the root of God's blessing, which is obedience and humility and love for God and honoring God. There's, there's, there's a blessing for obtaining the root and not just plucking all the, the fruit from the tree. Amen? I'm going to ask Pastor Peter to come out. He can close us in prayer. I hope you have enjoyed this series as much as we have. Like I said, there's books in the back. Buy them or have him sign them and give them whatever. You can, tell, you can see why they never put me at the tables because I'm always giving stuff away. Throwing. Yes. Well, this teaching was good for me. What about you? <laughs> <laughs> It's good. It's good. Are you a are you an asker or are you a gleaner? Are you an asker or are you a gleaner? This is the, what I want you to consider this week. Which one are you? Are you just do you, do you pick and choose what you want when you want, or are you pursuing to become a son and a daughter? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that we get filled up when we're with you and when we're at your table. And I just pray, Father, that each and every person here today would respond and rise up to the invitation to become a son and a daughter at the table of the Father. I pray, Father, they would go beyond gleaning and become askers, become uh, ardent pursuers of the Father. We ask this in your precious Son's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Great seeing you guys. May God bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you. Have a great week.